Hey everybody, we are back. It's we're just having a, a really challenging time with technology right now. But I'm waiting again for Adi Uyo, who again is not a guest anymore. He is my co-host for this series on the Olympics. And so here we go. We are back. And I'm going to accept his request. There we go. Adi. Hey, everybody. Hey, Hypno Chick. Hey, Joni. Little Joni. Joan. So we're back with Idi Uyo. Idi, I can see you perfectly now. And what I'd like to do is just start over again, uh, just because we've had so many technical glitches. And I'm gonna welcome everybody back to Full Body Frequency. And thank you all for, oh my God, Edwin Moses just joined. Hey, Edwin. So Edwin, I gotta brag. Oddly Mackle is my cousin. Big shout out, big love to you. So. The, the more housemen. <laughs> so this is exciting. So ID, why don't you do the honors? Since you you're uh, you you know Edwin Moses, I don't. I know him through legend, through my cousin, but I don't know him personally. So yeah, I mean, I'm just thrilled to, that Ed found time to carved out time to do this. I mean, Ed has been and continues to be a legend in the sport. I mean, it's. This is an honor and a privilege to associate with Edwin and the projects uh, that he's been involved with and some of the exciting things that he's doing, and um, both on and off the uh, in, in and out of the sports world. I mean, so it's just such an honor. I mean, Edwin, gold medal at the 1976 Olympics, likely to have won gold at the 1980 Olympics had they not been qualified. He did qualify for the Olympic team. But in between that, if you ever get a chance to read some of the publications that he's written what it was like competing during the Cold War era at the height of the Cold War and going behind the Iron Curtain to compete in the Eastern uh, countries, the satellite countries, just just amazing, just amazing, just fantastic. <laughs> so just an honor. And then, of course, he won gold in 1984 and has just had a brilliant career both in and off the track. I mean, Edwin is just such a just such an icon in the society at large, and he has um, he's currently working uh, with Congress in a number of different capacities, and he'll you know as those initiatives get off the ground, I'm sure that he will be writing more about that. So just watch the space and um, and what you uh, what you what you see. He has also written extensively for UK newspapers, The Guardian. You check out some of his articles in The Guardian. So an intellectual, a scientist, an Olympic gold medalist. I mean, I mean, I don't know what to say. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and yeah. It's a, and it's really a privilege to have you here. And thank you again, Edwin Moses, for joining us. And with that ID, <laughs> we got to tear into these Olympic <laughs> games that just ended. And so... We are concluding our series, and as I said earlier, IE is more than just a guest. At this point, he's my co-host, okay? So it's wonderful. He's an Olympic historian. He's a sports documentarian. And as you all know, the uh, Tokyo Olympics concluded yesterday. And with that, we sadly have to conclude this series, the Olympics, pandemic, politics, profits, protests and plus size athletes. Um, Idy, again, thank you so much for shepherding us through this Olympic journey with your analysis, your stats, and of course your knowledge. 
And as we know, these games are, were sometimes referred to as the COVID games, the pandemic, Olympics, but no matter what they've been called, they have been at the center of a lot of political and humanitarian consternation. Briefly background the Tokyo games for us, the highs, the lows, the hits and misses of their production. At the end of the day, the Tokyo Olympics was an optional sporting event. So there was quite a bit of concern as to whether or not they should even take place. Uh, we were in the middle of a planned pandemic, or I don't even know if we're in the middle of it with this, you know, other variant springing up. So I don't know where we are in the cycle. The games were postponed, should have been held last year, but of course they were not. First time in history that's happened that the games were postponed. And even as recently as the week before the games, uh, the organizer of the, the uh, chairman of the Tokyo Organizing Committee said that at any point in time, these games still could be called off. So it was a 50-50 proposition going into the Olympic Games themselves. But at the end of the day, I believe, this is just my personal opinion, it came down to money, finances, TV and media rights, and they went ahead with the Games. And, um, you know, it would have – you had the, the option at that point was binary. Either you move forward with the Games or these Games get canceled and it's on to the Tokyo – excuse me, the uh, Paris 2024 Games. So – they did hold the games ultimately out of 42,711 COVID tests. The 151 people tested positive. Of the, that's a percentage of 0.0035% or 35 people for every 10,000 athletes that were tested. So that's a very low number. I'm sure that the Tokyo organizers are very pleased with that stat. And I think a lot of people are very surprised at that because there were those people that thought this would be a super spreader event. I mean, a lot of the sponsors could not do the things that sponsors pay a lot of money to be able to do at the Olympic Games. They couldn't do it. And in fact, Toyota, which is what's known as a top sponsor, one of the elite highest level sponsorships you can have at the Olympic Games, decided that they were going to pull all advertising off of Japanese TV. So because of the public lack of public support for the games within Japan and Toyota being Japan's largest company, they did not want that backlash. So um, there was a lot of concern going into these Olympic games, but it looks like they did it they um, did. without it being a super spreader event. But, you know, albeit with empty stadiums for the most part and empty venues, but there was just so much money involved that they felt that they had to move forward with it. And, of course, they did. So some of the storylines of the Olympics, there are several. I mean, so some of the ones that come to mind, it's in the high jump, the gentleman from Qatar and Italy sharing the gold medal. First time right. a gold medal has been split like that in athletics ever. There was an Indian so, javelin thrower. Who, so wait a minute. Know, Before we go too much into the actual yeah. games themselves, yeah. let's talk a little bit about, and I, I hate to interrupt you because I know you're on a roll, but let's talk a little bit about the host country and what, and some of the little known perks are and their delegation, if you will. Yeah, so Japan ended up winning 57 medals. That's the best they've ever done at the Olympic Games. Their previous high was 41 at the 1964 Games in Tokyo, also in Tokyo, and also in 2008 in Beijing. The host city usually uses the Olympics for capital expenditure. Arenas get built and refurbished. Stadiums get renovated. 
uh, roads and infrastructure, things of this nature, get an overhaul. So a lot of things work themselves in the budget of the national, of the host, that country, yeah. uh, as a result of the Olympic Games. And in the case of Japan, it's really one of the few countries that could have pulled this off because it is an advanced country. It's a G7 country, third largest economy in the world. They have an advanced sporting infrastructure. And then, of course, um, as a society, they're very disciplined because the Olympics has a lot of volunteers. And so everyone really has to be on the same page. So for the Japanese, they would consider this a success, though I will say that there was a lot of uncertainty, as I mentioned previously, leading into the game. There's an organization called No Japan, and they, as of yesterday, have 435,000 signatures. Ratings-wise, because the Japanese, the locals, were not allowed to go to the venues, a lot of them watched on TV. So at some point, the numbers looked like there were 90% of, Jap of Japanese watched the Olympics at some point during the games. That's amazing. So that's, that's a amazing. pretty high number. And then also the delegation. I think you mentioned at some point that there were 613 uh um, members of the Japanese delegation. And you also said something to me offline that the host committee has special privileges in terms of the games, in terms of entering, participating, uh, in terms of the qualifiers. Explain that. Yeah, so for team sports, the host nation almost always qualifies for the teams, all the team sports. Like, for instance, Japan is not a power in basketball, but they qualify both the men and the women in basketball. The same goes for soccer, right? They are a power in soccer, so they likely would have qualified anyway. Baseball and softball, the same thing. But the host nation usually qualifies automatically, and that's because of the rules of the federation. So, for instance, the soccer federation, if you're hosting the World Cup, you automatically, as a host nation, qualify for the World Cup, right? And the same applies to the Olympic Games. That's why a lot of times the host nation has a larger delegation when it hosts the games because they qualify for the team sports. So I think that's that's really uh, important for folks to know. And I just thought it was an interesting, again, ID fact, a little known Olympic uh, fact. So um, again, those are things that we didn't realize, but going back to the actual games itself, I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that struck me about this Olympiad was the representation of people of African descent representing not only Africa, and shout out to my maternal grandmother's side of the family from Cameroon, but there was significant representation throughout Af the African diaspora from Asia, from Europe, from North America, from South America, Let's unpack a little bit of that. Let's talk a little bit about that and get back to all of the incredible medal winners, incredible athletes, period. Well, a lot of Africans compete for other countries. Like the U.S. women's volleyball team has three mm -hmm. members whose parents are from Africa, right? And we've seen the same in other, for other countries. And that has to do with the facilities of these other countries. For the most part, these are people that maybe they've immigrated and in some cases, they do go back to represent their native countries. But for the most part, they have coaches established in these countries. They have a routine, a regimen that works for them. And, of course, at that elite level, you do not want to disrupt your training, uh, if you will. This is what I hear from elite athletes. I am not one, but from having spoken to several, this is what they say. I mean, it's, it's a very regimented, very disciplined, very structured sort of approach 
to this. And Africans did very well. Now, as far as African countries go, Kenya, as usual, topped the medal table with 10. And then you roll on down the line. Disappointing performances from a country like South Africa. They usually do well in the pool and on the track, not so much this time. And we had um, countries that won medals for the first time. Um, you've had Botswana winning their second ever gold medal in the 4 by 400 meter relay. Previously, they'd won silver in London 2012. You had Uganda doubling its medal total at these games, and they've won combined in the history of the game. So Africans and Africans in the diaspora made a very big contribution to the success of these games. Absolutely. And at some point, let's talk a little bit about the woman. I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Tamara Mensa Stock became the first black wrestler, female wrestler, to mm -hmm. win an Olympic gold medal. Right. Her father is from Ghana originally, and he died in a car accident taking her back from practice or dropping her off from practice. So, right. you know, a little bit of a sad story there, but in the end, good to see that she triumphed in the medal stand. Absolutely. And part of her 37000 dollars of that, 30000 is going to her mom for her mom to open up a food truck, a barbecue food truck, which is kind of a really good feel-good story, even though, you know, her father wasn't alive to see her win gold. Yeah, so U.S. athletes get $37,500 for a gold medal. And I can't recall what silver and bronze get, but there is some level of monetary compensation for winning a medal if you're part of the U.S. Olympic team. Other countries give more. Some don't give anything at all. But in the case of Mensa Stock, she did say that ever since she was a kid, it's been her dream to buy her mom a food truck. So she's going to take part of the proceeds and apply it towards that. It's exciting. That's exciting. Let's talk a little bit about Jasmine Camacho Quinn for a second, because there was a lot of consternation, I use that word again, about her representing Puerto Rico. And because her mom was born in Puerto Rico, she obviously was, well, the rules are she could represent Puerto Rico. And even though she was born in South Carolina, I mean, we know that Puerto Rico is a territory of the U.S. So let's talk a little bit about that story. Yeah, Jasmine Camacho Quinn had some adversity at the 2016 uh, Olympic Games. She won gold in the 100, okay, for those that don't know, this was the 100 meter hurdles. And she won gold for Puerto Rico. And she had a choice, just like a lot of these athletes have choices as to whether or not they represent, if they have dual citizenship, or I think the rule is like a quarter citizenship of a country, you can represent that country. So she chose Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico competes independently, even though Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. And there are a few other countries like that. And so she ends up winning gold this year, having not finished the race in 2016. So that was a great story. She was able to lift the Puerto Rican flag. Only the second time Puerto Rico's won an Olympic gold medal. Uh, the first coming in 2016 when Monica Puig won it in tennis. Very cool. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the stars of the Olympics. Um, you mentioned before we jumped back into Japan and talking a little bit more about host countries, you were speaking about the swimmer from uh, Qatar. Uh, let's yeah, talk yeah, the, swimmer, the, the swimmer was the high jump. The guy from Qatar was the high jumper. I'm the sorry. swimmer was from Tunisia. Ah, that's right. That's right. Going back to Africa, yeah. if you will. So 
So let's talk a little about about his his win. Totally unexpected. He finished last in the qualifying heats because to make it to the final, you've got to swim a certain number of heats. So he finished last. He was the last qualifier, drew lane eight, which was the worst lane you could draw in swimming. And he ends up winning. So surprising was his goal that there were no Tunisian officials in the stand, only his coach. And they did not have a uniform for him for the medal ceremony. So if you watch the medal ceremony, he's wearing these you know, these shorts with the shirt that doesn't match. I mean, does not look like any other medal recipient because usually there's a uniform for the medal ceremonies. All these things are planned out in advance, and the Tunisian had none of that. So that's how surprising his, uh, that's how surprising his win was. But a heartwarming story uh, coming out of North Africa, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So shoot us with some more stars. Like we, we, the stars of tomorrow. We know that there's a, a Chinese woman, a swimmer, who is uh, 14 years old, first time at the Olympics. We've got Paris in 2024. We've got LA in 2028. And it goes on and on and on. Who are, who are the future stars coming well, out you of mentioned, the Olympics? Yeah, you mentioned the Chinese. That was actually in diving. And diving, I'm sorry. Yeah, in a 10-meter platform diving, not only did she win the gold, but she got a perfect score. Two of her dives were perfect scores. She got a 10, a 10, and a 9.8. But the 9.8, they throw out the lowest score. So in essence, that's the first time that's happened. And you'd have to go all the way back to the 1988 Olympic Games when a Chinese diver named Zhang Mi threatened Greg Luganis, the great American platform diver. He had won a gold medal in 84, actually two medal, two golds in 1984. And here it is, 1988. He's being challenged by this upstart 14-year-old. And so this reminded a lot of people about that. A young diver who's from China, 14 years old, just out there to have fun. But unlike Zhang Ni, she actually does win gold. Um, we saw good performances from Sipan Hassan of the Netherlands, originally from uh, Ethiopia. She fell down in the women's 1500 meter, the qualifying heat, and she gets up to win the heat. And then she takes the bronze in the final of that event and then takes gold in the 5,000 and the 10,000. So that was a story that a lot of people weren't really expecting. And then the 100 meter dash, Marcel Jacobs of Italy. I mean, the previously, his, he had not broken 10 seconds before these Olympics, and then he runs a 9.8 to win the Olympic gold medal. So that took a lot of people by surprise. And then, of course, you cannot discount the Jamaican, the Jamaican women sweeping the 100-meter dash, gold, silver, and bronze, and then turning around, and a, a late Thompson Arrow winning the 200, and then winning the 4 by 400 equaling what Usain Bolt did at the 2016 games and the 2012 mm -hmm. games in terms of performances. Um, Allison Felix, right, at, at her age, becoming the most decorated uh, Olympian ever. And a lot of people kept right. saying that this is her last race. We don't know. Allison Felix has not said that this is her last race, that she's done with the Olympics. I think it's because of her age people believe that she is. But if you win an Olympic bronze medal, it means you're still competing at a very high level. So she also won gold in the 4 by 400 meter relay and ran the second fastest split on that relay team. So I don't necessarily know if we've heard the last of Allison Felix. Um, there were the USA women's basketball team 
Right. But seven straight gold medals, the last time they lost was in 1990. Match since then. So once again, they claim gold. And their best players were not even on the team. The best player in the WNBA is Erika Ogumbwawale. She wasn't on the team. And former WNBA MVP, Neka Ogumweke was not on the team. These are people that previously played for USA Basketball. So the future looks bright, and we're, we're talking about African-Americans. They had an African-American coach, Don Staley, okay, mm-hmm. who coached them to oh, the yeah. gold medal. She's announced that she's not coming back. And there were some other stories on that team, Sue Bird and Dana Tarazi winning their mm-hmm. fifth respective gold medals. That's not been done before in basketball. And then on the men's side, having lost to France in the opening match, running the table to, and then beating France to win the gold medal. So that was a, uh, that was an interesting story. Eddie Alvarez, Eddie Alvarez is a baseball player for the United States. He played on Team USA Baseball. He previously won a silver medal in sh- speed skating and short track speed skating at the Winter Olympics. And so now he converts over. He's a baseball player now. And he wins silver mm-hmm. in men's baseball in Japan. And so, you know, those were some very interesting storylines coming out of these games that a lot of people will hang on to. And, of course, there's Simone Biles. Right? Simone Biles had a very successful Olympic game. She won a silver medal and a bronze. And by most account, being a multiple Olympic medalist, you are, in fact, successful. So given the injuries and some of the mental health issues that she was dealing with, a lot of people felt that she did the best she could under those circumstances. Absolutely. And the fact that she's prioritizing mental health for everyone, not just for black women, not for just for black women athletes, I think it's really important. I think she's an incredible role model beyond the Larry Nassar scandal. And, and I'm sure it may be in some ways tied to mental health. The outcome, you know, the having suffered through that having lost her aunt while she was at the Olympics. I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on in Simone Biles' life that we don't have privilege to, to know about, and that's fine. But I think that this is a new way of viewing uh, athletic competition or the, the foundations that people need or the, not even foundations, but really kind of the, the additional assistance that folks need uh, to uh, go through their training regimen. I mean, just to be human in this world, to walk through this world as a human being. So hats off to Simone Biles. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times because athletes do things a lot of us cannot do, we don't Mm -hmm. see them in human terms per se. We believe that they should maybe be above that or they should be able to block it out. Mm -hmm. But these are very real issues. And Simone Mm -hmm. dealt with them not to talk to the fact that her brother was on trial for murder in Texas before she left it for the Olympics and he ended up getting acquitted. So there was a lot on her shoulders. And she was absolutely the face of these games prior to the Olympics. And she was the biggest storyline during the first week of the Olympics. So as a professional athlete with a high level of discipline, when she knew that she was unable to bring her A game she stepped aside for someone else to fill that uh, to fill that void, and they did so quite capably, winning silver. Right, it's amazing. The spirit of of that is amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, there's another you... there's another African American lady mm-hmm. that made way 
is uh, Raymond Saunders won the silver medal in the shot put. Right. And she protested on the medal stand by, with the protest gesture of an X. And at the Olympics, you're not allowed to protest. There's mm -hmm. something called IOC Rule 50, which prohibits athlete expressions of protest on the medal podium. And she did. And so the International Olympic Committee announced that they were investigating it, though it's not clear what exactly they're investigating. And the United States Olympic Committee said that we actually support Raven Saunders, that she's free to protest. Our policies now grant athletes the right to protest so long as you are not disparaging other people, nor are you infringing on the rights of others. So this was a peaceful protest. Peaceful protest is absolutely legal in Japan. It's legal in the United States. And so, you know, the United States Olympic Committee uh, backed Raven Saunders. The International Olympic Committee, by the way, suspended the investigation when they found out that Raven Saunders' mom had passed away a couple of days after uh, she won the silver. So to me, it's not clear that they're ever going to pick up that investigation again. And I think that in this day and age, those kinds of rules really need to be revisited. See, the, I, the International Olympic Committee is a very big organization. It's like the Titanic, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to, to change the course of the Titanic takes time because it's so big. So for the IOC, it's in that kind of organization. Because of the bureaucracy and the different interests involved, it's... Changing policies like that do take time, but I do think that with social media and with athletes recognizing the power of their respective brands, that policy in and of itself will have to be reviewed. Absolutely. And one of the things that we talked about in the previous uh, conversation, Heidi, was the fact, and HypnoChick is pointing this out again, is that the Olympics need, needed Simone Biles way more than she needed the Olympics in terms of her power or presence as a media star. And we talked about the possibility in our original, <laughs> about a month ago conversation before the Olympics, God forbid if anything happened to Simone Biles, what would happen to NBC's ratings? What would happen to sponsorship? Even though sponsorship is already locked down, but there'll be fewer eyes on, the, on NBC folks watching if Simone didn't participate. Talk a little bit about that. What happened when she pulled out of the team competition and two or and three of the individual competitions? Well, what happened was the story shifted from gymnastics to mental health because of the magnitude of the athlete herself. Simone Biles in and of itself is a very premier brand, if I could use that word to describe Simone Biles. I mean, this is someone who does things that the judges cannot score because it's not been done before on the map, right, in the right. sport of gymnastics. So she has her own signature moves, several of them, by the way. So she is that large of a star. And so when she pulled out of the competition, it went from being just a sports story to a mainstream media story. I mean, the BBC would lead its broadcast with this. So that tells you just how big a story it was globally. And it just moved from the realm of athletic competition and the Olympic Games to, well, wait a minute, uh, you have this big star who we expected to see do all these things now pulling out for this reason. So maybe it's time to examine uh, whether or not we put too much pressure on these athletes. Or uh, in this particular case, 
people started to look at what has Simone Biles been through that forced this particular decision at this time. And it was not a physical injury because she said it wasn't anything physical. Right. Now, ratings-wise, gymnastics and swimming carry the first week of the Olympic Games in primetime coverage mm -hmm. is carried by gymnastics and swimming. And so those are, for the network, that's the good thing is that the advertisers are locked in because that's premium advertising space right there. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the second week, the Olympic program moves to the stadium for the athletic competition. But that first week, it's absolutely carried by gymnastics. The final numbers for the ratings are not in yet. I think the best day so far for the Olympics was the Monday after opening ceremonies and the Thursday of that first week. But it remains to be seen the impact that her absence would have on the ratings itself. Of course, the competition went forward, but it just right. wasn't the same. Now, with Simone Biles unable to compete on the individual events like the parallel bars, the floor exercises, and it made room for other stars like Suni Lee. Right. right, who ended up winning a gold medal. And Jordan, forgive me for not knowing the last name, uh, she was actually an alternate on the team. She ended up winning a gold in the floor exercise. So Simone's absence created a larger conversation outside the realm of sports. And her presence was absolutely felt. So here it is, Simone Biles wasn't competing in all the disciplines, but she was still the dominant figure in the first week of the Olympic Games. Absolutely. And one of the things that you said, said in a, another, we, we have these conversations off air, but one of the things that you said, Idy, that just struck me is that so many people took it to heart that, well, Simone came and sh she only got a bronze and she only got a silver, you know, a silver in the team, a bronze in the individual competition um, on the balance beam. But the reality is she's still an elite athlete. She's still the most decorated woman gymnast in the history of the Olympics. So what are we talking about here? Simone Biles got a bronze in the balance beam, the same position she took five years ago in Rio at the 2016 games, where she also won bronze in that event. Had Simone Biles not meddled, she still would have been the most decorated gymnast ever um, by virtue of her performances. So, yeah, I mean, Simone Biles leaves with – there are people that expected her to win gold in everything. Right. But in many ways, the conversation she started might be much more important than the Olympic medal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So not to rain on anyone's Olympic parade, but what about – doping this year. I mean, we, we started off with, and this is a, kind of a separate conversation, but it's, a, it's, 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 it's kind of, no, it's a different conversation. So I'm not even going to mention Shakari in the context of doping uh, at the Olympics, because it's different. It's a very different conversation. But when you talked about Marcel Jacobs, there were some questions about his winning and the testing process that was used on him or the non-testing process that he actually, the, 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 let, me, let me back that up. So he apparently was not tested. Explain that. Well, he was tested, but this, not held to the same rigorous standards as to the others. So here's what I mean by that. 
Marcel Jacobs of Italy, his father was from Texas. His mom is Italian. He runs for Italy. He wins the men's 100-meter dash. Right. And it's from nowhere. No one expects this. He had not run ten uh, sub-10-second times. And so he just emerges and takes the gold ahead of America's Fred Curley. Mm -hmm. There's something called the Athletics Integrity Unit that demands random testing of elite athletes a certain number of years, a certain times, certain numbers per time per year. So Marcel Jacobs' performances previously were not even on the athletic integrity unit's radar, so he did not have to undergo the same rigorous out-of-competition testing that some of the other athletes did. Right. Moreover, some of the doctors and trainers that he has been working with are under investigation in Italy for prescribing banned substances to their clients in the gym and in other places. So when you consider that Jacobs did not have to undergo the same standards of testing from the Athletics Integrity Unit because his times did not measure elite enough, so he was able to get out of that, and you see these investigations in Italy, which I'm sure maybe shut down now, um, a lot of people were questioning what the situation was that he would come from nowhere to, uh, to win the goal. So I am passing no judgments. I am saying what's in the public domain. And I'm also um, quoting what was in the UK Guardian, where they, are, they ran a piece on Sunday about this, and a lot of people are talking about it. Now, he was also part of the Italian four by 100 meter relay that won gold, and that also has never happened before. So during COVID, there were a lot of lax standards with out of competition testing, not just in athletics, but across the board, swimming, everything. Why? Because these testers couldn't go door to door during a pandemic with a lot of mobility restrictions forced lockdown. So some people are questioning some of these performances saying, you know, I don't know what to make of them, given the fact that um, the testing cycles weren't as they normally are. So I'll just put it that way when it comes to doping. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So let's talk about the end of the Olympics, kind of the handover from Tokyo to Paris. Yeah, so... The next Olympics actually is in seven months' time, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, China. Not quite sure how that's going to work because they're having it. Because Northern China is not necessarily known. Hold on a second. Sorry about that. No problem. Sorry. Okay. So, um, hey, Heidi. Oh, there you are. You're back. Okay. Yeah, northern China is not necessarily known for its snow. So that's going to be interesting to see how that works. Uh, then the next Summer Olympics is in two and a half years from now or three years from now in Paris. So the handover was made yesterday. So now we, uh, we prepare for, uh, for Paris 2024. Certain sports will not be on the Olympic program. Baseball and softball will be removed from the Olympic program because those sports were added because the Olympics allows the host country to add two sports that are meaningful or indigenous to that area where the masses play those sports. And there is no bigger sport in Japan than baseball. 
So baseball and softball were added to the Tokyo program. They will not be in Paris 2024. And ironically, Japan did win gold in both the men's baseball and women's softball. Right. Break dancing, break dancing will be added to the Olympic program in 2024. So yeah, for us, it's coming up 30, 40 years too late, but break dancing right. will be there. And for the first time, the Vatican will send an Olympic team to Paris. So, you know, we, I don't know what sports come out of the Vatican, but that is a very interesting development given the <laughs> fact that the Olympics were actually, the, the ancient Olympics were actually ended by Emperor Theodosius II because he banned all pagan festivals when Rome conquered Greece. So, you know, it's interesting that the Vatican is now back in the Olympics. Fair. So we'll see what Paris has. Um, it is. Right now, no one knows what the pandemic is going to do. So, but Paris officials are preparing as if there would be some sort of impact, if you will, related to the pandemic. So testing, hand, they are moving forward as if they will be in a pandemic state. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, France um, how France manages uh, these Olympic Games. It will also be the centennial anniversary of Paris hosting the Olympic Games. They last hosted in 1924, which was the last Olympics decided over by the founder of the modern Olympics, Baron Pierre de Coubertin. So that was kind of like his Lifetime Achievement Award was awarding those 1924 Olympics to Paris, where, by the way, he won a gold medal in literature writing under an assumed name. Hmm. So literature used to be an Olympic sport. Wow. Another yeah. little-known <laughs> Olympic uh, fact from Heidi. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting that, and, and, and it's fitting, that 100 years later, after the 1924 Olympics, they returned to Paris. So that's... Yeah. Cool. Paris, is, uh, Paris will become, I think... Yeah, Paris will become the first city or the second city to host the Olympics three times. Mm -hmm. The first time was in 1900, and the Olympics were such a shaky proposition that they could not stand on their own. The 1900 Olympics had to be attached as a part of the World's Fair that was taking place in Paris that year. And the, and the head of the Paris World's Fair, a guy named Alfred Picard, did not allow Olympic organizers to call it the Olympic Games because he said, quote, unquote, sports is for morons. Mm. Yeah. So what happened was you had competition, people running races in parks around Paris. The swimming events took place in the Seine. And it was called the, the Festival of Exercises of Sciences. So people did not know until about seven years later that they were part of an Olympic Games. You know, they get the certificate says, you know that thing that you did at a park in Paris seven years ago? Yeah. yeah. Well, that was an Olympics. You were actually an Olympic. You know, so <laughs> those, 19, those 1900 games could loosely be qualified as an Olympics. But yeah, Paris gets them again. In, yeah, Paris gets them again in 2024. Yeah. <laughs> and so then after that, the Olympics go, after that, the Olympics come to L.A. in 2028 and right. then to Australia in 2032. Yeah. Wow. We've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way yeah. from yeah. running around in the park. But one of the things that you 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 shared with me and I found it absolutely fascinating were the L.A. first um, as far as the Olympics. Share a few of those with us. Yeah, so when Paris was awarded the Olympics in 1924 simultaneously, Amsterdam got the Olympics in 1928, and the L.A. Olympics were awarded in 19, 
for 1932. And those LA Olympics were the first Olympics after the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. So it was difficult for athletes to get to LA, especially European athletes, because yeah. so the LA officials had to be creative. So for the first time, we saw an athlete's village for the men. The women stayed at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Okay. So for the, yeah, for the first time, we saw, and then the idea of a medal podium where you have the gold medal winner standing at the center of the, on top of the podium, then the silver medalist to his right, and the bronze medalist to his left. That medal podium was also incorporated for the first time at the 1932 LA Olympics. And it was the first Olympics to turn a profit. It made a modest profit of $100,000, which by today's money would be about $2.4 million mm -hmm. in profit. An interesting story. So, so bad were economic conditions that the Brazilians left Brazil, the Brazil Olympic team left Brazil on a boat to go to LA right? And they would sell Brazilian coffee along the way to raise enough money to compete and to finance their stay while in LA. Of the 69 athletes, when they got to LA, only 19 had sold enough coffee to be able to afford to compete in the Olympic Games and pay the $1 disembarkment fee. The rest had to turn around and go back to Brazil. Wow. 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 You talk about athletes and being self-sustaining, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. And then didn't, didn't you think about after the, I'm sorry, say that again? Yeah, didn't sell enough coffee. They had to go home. Yeah. Couldn't afford it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And I think about, it just makes me think about Jesse Owens and after the Olympic Games, how he had a difficult time finding work. I mean, he had to race against the horse at some point to raise money. Was that before or after the, the, the Games? Yeah, so Jesse Owens, today is actually the 85th anniversary of Jesse Owens winning his fourth Olympic gold medal today. Wow. 85 years ago at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, and it shattered Adolf Hitler's theories of racial supremacy and broke all kinds of stereotypes, etc. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, so he comes back. So he lost his amateur status because back in those days, if you made money, you were a professional and you could no longer compete in the Olympics. Jesse Owens had to work. So when he leaves Berlin, he goes to London and he competes in a meet at Crystal Palace. And he runs again and he shatters the world record in 100 again. But he gets money for this. And so as at that point, he no longer is eligible to run in future Olympic Games. So he doesn't have a job. So he has to do something in order to, to make ends meet. And he said, you know what? You're saying that I shouldn't be doing these things. But you can't eat gold medals. i got to take care of my right. family. So he worked briefly as a speed coach for the New York Mets uh, baseball team. And then he did these exhibitions where he would run against horses later in life. Yeah, such was the case with Jesse Owens. And it's amazing in the, in the fact that all of his white teammates were offered all sorts of career opportunities from nine to five jobs to uh, making appearances in, in movies in Hollywood. And Jesse Owens is racing against horses. Amazing. Well, the times we lived in back then, um, Jesse Owens is originally from Alabama. So they do a benefit for him in his hometown, a reception, a banquet for him. Jesse Owens goes to the banquet. But because he's black, he has to go through the back door mm -hmm. and sit separately 
from others, even though he's the one being honored. So such were the times that we, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole thing about those 1936 Olympics, Jesse Owens in particular, and the impact that those 36 games had on shaping the Olympics as we know today, and with black participation in the Olympics. That 36 athletics team absolutely carried the athletics team and elevated the number of golds that the Americans won. Prior to that, the U.S. had never won at more gold medal in athletics than any other country prior to that 36 team. Ironically, Jesse Owens would win the 200 meters, the 200 meter race at those games in Berlin in 1936. The guy that finished second was a guy named Mac Robinson, whose brother right. Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier in Major League Baseball 11 years later in 1947. Right. The Brooklyn Dodgers, yeah. Right. Uh, Jackie Robinson's older brother, Mac Robinson. Mac Robinson, yeah. yeah. Four year letterman at UCLA, yeah. Right. And, and to be clear, it wasn't just Jesse Owens, it wasn't just Mac Robinson. There were a total of 18 black athletes that competed in the 1936 Olympics on the track and field team, including women who broke all sorts of barriers. So we can't forget the women. Yeah. And especially, uh, Idy, as you and I have spoken before about Black women being under siege uh, in terms of uh, this Olympic Games. I mean, we talk about Castor Semenya, you talk about the, the women from Namibia, we talk about, um, oh, there's several women who even after participating in the Games, uh, folks wanted them to be tested, their, their hormone levels to be tested to make sure that they are indeed women. Yeah, so you had Namibian athletes, one of whom ended up winning a silver medal, by the way, in the 200 meters. The rule says that if your testosterone levels as a woman are higher than, I think the number is five parts per 200 liters, and I have no idea what that means because I'm not a physician, right. um, then, you're, then you're considered not to be a woman, and you're, no, and you're not you're not allowed to race in events that are between 400 meters and 1500 meters, which is basically the metric mile. Okay. So this Namibian athlete, Christine Boma, was had the world leading time in the 400 meters, but because her testosterone levels were higher than five parts per 200 liters, she was not allowed to run in her signature event. She did run in the 200 meters because that doesn't fall under these guidelines, and she ended up winning silver to Elaine Thompson-Harrow of Jamaica in the 200 meters. So um, in the 800 meters, the defending champion, Castro Semenya of South Africa, had also tested higher for elevated testosterone levels, and she was not allowed to compete in the 800 race. She tried to compete in the 200, wasn't her team. She did not qualify for the South African Olympic team. And also, ironically, in that 800-meter race for the 2016 Games in Rio, the second-place finisher was from Burundi, and the third-place finisher was from Kenya, and all three athletes tested for high levels of testosterone, and none of them were back in Tokyo to defend the Olympic medals. Blocked, banned. What, what, what people are saying is that there needs to be consistent standards. We right. saw a transgender athlete in weightlifting from New Zealand. She was allowed to compete. A transgender soccer player won a gold medal with Team Canada. She was allowed to compete. Mm -hmm. So uh, those, uh, my friends in athletics know much more about this than I do. I will just say that. So they can comment on it more. 
People just want the standards to be consistent. Absolutely, absolutely. And Idy, before we go, um, we're going to talk a little bit more, if, if I can hold you for uh, about a few more minutes. But I really want folks to know more about what you do. And let's start off with your work as a sports marketer, your work with countries in Africa, the Olympic committees in Africa, but also let's talk about your work as a documentarian, a sports documentarian, and your documentary on uh, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, so in terms of sports history, the, our documentary practice, we try to collate the backstory, things that not everybody's talking about, mm -hmm. the little known facts. And we try to weave a tapestry of a story together that we feel would draw in the average person who is not necessarily a sports fan, right? So the documentary about Muhammad Ali talked about, and by the way, Edwin was a part of that documentary. He was there, right? I mean, he could speak a lot more about it. Um, but chronicling that period in Muhammad Ali's life where his title was stripped from him and the storylines in the city and the way that the city of Atlanta played a role in helping him to fight again, right, by staging his comeback fight in 1970 against Jerry Quarry. So the Ali's Comeback is the name of the documentary, The Untold Story. It's streaming on Amazon. So go download it. would love to know what people think about it. And then we have something called the Olympic Moment Series, which we're getting ready to expand. And these are two to three minute vignettes that talk about snippets in Olympic history that help shape the Olympic narrative into what it is today. An example would be, well, why is the marathon 26.2 miles? That seems like a weird number. 26.2, I mean, how did that, you know, and also the history of television. Television made the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So we talk about women and the Olympics. For instance, if the swimming was an Olympic sport until 1912, but the U.S. didn't compete because the American Olympic Committee objected to women showing too much skin. They insisted that the women wear dresses that went all the way down to the ankles to swim. And so as a result of that, you know, the U.S. said, you know what, we're not going to field a team unless our swimmers can wear dresses that go down to the ankle. So, you know, so, and we also talk about the politics of uh the politics of the Olympic Games. I mean, the Olympics went from this thing of individualism to nationalism to then competing systems of government, fascism versus democracy, and then during the Cold War, Cold War versus communism versus democracy. And now we're seeing the economic imperative of the Olympics. If you look at the medal table, the top 10 finishers are the richest countries in the world. They consistently finish in the top 10. And so the question is, if, you're, if the economy of your country is not a certain size, we will not see you in the pool swimming. We will not see you in the gym for gymnastics. We won't see you in the equestrian events. We won't see you in fencing. So there is a direct correlation between the size of a nation's economy and the sports in which their athletes compete. And so we try to tell that story. On the marketing side, yes, we work with Olympic committees in emerging economies, on marketing, content development, branding, public relations, communication strategy. So it's been a real privilege to get to meet some of these Olympic committees in some of these emerging markets and to be a partner with the IOC in that endeavor. So, Idy, get out your crystal ball for a moment and tell us what you see as the future of the Olympic Games outside of the coronavirus. Um, and you mentioned emerging economies, but let's let's talk about 
for possibilities. The, uh, so can you re rephrase the question? Sure, sure, sure. I'll make it less, <laughs> I'll, I'll be a little bit more conci concise. So I'll go back to the, um, the, the fact that there, there was so much, there was so much representation of people of African descent at this Olympic Games. We had folks from the continent of Africa, we had folks from the African diaspora, whether it was Asia, whether it's Europe, whether it's South America or North America. And because we are talking about countries that uh, with emerging economies that don't often get to the medal stand, don't often have the infrastructure for the training, However, again, we've seen, we've seen a lot more representation in this Olympics than I can remember, because I've watched the Olympics for a long time uh, as a kid, you know, since I was a kid. And I just don't remember seeing so many Black bodies on screen, uh, as difficult as it was to see these Black bodies, because NBC tended to dilute the coverage on a number of channels. But what do you see as the future of the Olympics? Will we see more black folks, brown folks? Uh, are, what, what's happening? What's going on? What's your prediction about the way these games will play out in the future? What the Olympics are trying to do is appeal to a younger demographic. I mean, because mm -hmm. before, the Olympics was absolutely used as a platform to fight the Cold War. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. We cannot deny that. It played a very big role in the tapestry of Olympics. So now with the introduction of surfing, rock climbing, mm -hmm. skateboarding, these are not sports that Africans are doing. Okay. These are not sports that black and brown people are doing, but they are sports that younger people are doing. Mm -hmm. And what are advertisers trying to do? They're trying to appeal to a younger demographic to push messaging. There's talk about esports being in the Olympics. And you know, that's, whether that happen, put it this way, the Olympics needs esports more than esports needs Olympics. Obviously, <laughs> that it's not. But right. the trajectory of the games is to try to appeal to a younger demographic, irrespective of race, irrespective of color. A lot of Africans, for instance, and Asians compete for countries that had a colonial footprint mm -hmm. in that region. For instance, you see a lot of Ghanaians, Nigerians competing for the United Kingdom. You see a lot of Francophone African countries residents there competing for France. Right. So, and the Netherlands, the same thing. So I think now with the introduction of these additional sports, it, there is this movement to go younger because that's where the net new revenues are going to be. If you look at the new sponsors of the Olympics, Intel, which makes microchips mm -hmm. for devices. They are now an Olympic premier partner, which suggests, right, which suggests some more technology infusion coming into the Olympics with things like virtual reality and things of this right. nature. Alibaba, it's like an Amazon, right, but bigger, mm -hmm. 10 times bigger than Amazon. Um, they are the official e-commerce partner. So might they use that as a footprint into some of these emerging markets? So we're in the commercialization phase of the Olympics. And part of that means introducing sports that draw advertisers, and that's a certain demographic. And that's where we are with the Olympics going forward. Okay. And again, as a reminder, we had a young woman diver from China, age 14, that won two gold medals 
during the Tokyo Games. So there we go. There we go. Well, I mean, the Winter Olympics are being held in Beijing. Mm -hmm. Beijing is not known as a winter vacation spot right. like you would see in Sweden or Bale. But there are 300 million people in northern China. Those people will now buy sporting gear, sports equipment, huge commercial opportunities mm -hmm. with these Beijing games. So Beijing, here you are. Take the Winter Olympics. And by the way, that goes also, no one else wanted to take them, that, that cycle. So they've got – but the future <laughs> – the future of the Olympics, they now have to compete for space with other popular sports and other platforms. So mm -hmm. now, whereas before, everybody watched NBC and ABC in the U.S., the BBC in the U.K., if you're in France, you watch TV Canal Plus, um, and so on. Now, with the options that people have, the Olympics must also adjust to maintain the relevance that they have. Now the Olympics are a commercial opportunity. Previously, the, the Olympics had this nationalistic feel. So, for instance, in a recent poll done by ESPN, it found that in the United States, the biggest sporting event ever in the history of this country was the 1980 hockey team beating the Soviet Union at the Olympics oh, yeah. in Lake Placid. Mm -hmm. That was a big. You know what number two was? The number two sporting event to that in that pool was David beating Goliath. Mm -hmm. That was number two. So when you consider the magnitude <laughs> of yeah. So when you so when you consider the magnitude of what that meant from a national, it felt more like a military victory. So we're out of that phase of the games, right? So now it's purely commercial. It's purely commercial, and everything that happens with the Olympics is done with that intent. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to add this little bit that watching the commercials towards the end of the Olympic Games. Instead of focusing on one athlete, there was a focus on a number of them. And I saw that commercial shift. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how these games play out as far as the money, as far as sponsorship, and the, the focus on a number of athletes telling a number of athletes uh, instead of just one. Again, hearkening back to Simone Biles holding up the Summer Olympics this year. So. Yeah, well, this is the first Olympics since 2000 did not have an, either Michael Phelps or Usain Bolt. Mm -hmm. So now there was the need to cultivate new stars, new storylines. Mm -hmm. So that's why Simone Biles was the signature headliner. In athletics to a lesser degree, but still very significant, Elliot Kipchoge of Kenya, right, who defended his title in the marathon, he became the first person to run a sub-two-hour two marathon. Okay, previously in a test event in October of 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there is a need to cultivate and promote new stars. So I believe the Olympics are trying to do that so that there's some level of familiarity going into the next cycle. So you know who these athletes are. It's why Ronaldo and Messi and these soccer players are so well known. It's because of the ubiquity of their brand. And the Olympics are trying to create that to some degree with the number of stars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask the audience if they have any questions for ID. And if you do, type them in the comments section. And if not, we're going to move on. And I see we do have some comments there. Uh, Esther Armar says, wow, ankle length dresses, politics, gender wars, racism, 
endlessly fascinating. Big love, big love from Esther. Oh, thank you. Hey, Esther, <laughs> thank you very much. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because the, the origin of organized sport itself, organized sport is not that old. It's only 150 years old. So in the grand scheme of things, it's not. But if you look at the origin of organized sport, um, you cannot deny that those elements are there. And we do see them in the modern day, whether it's the inequity in salaries that some of the athletes get versus other, the coaching opportunities. And bringing it back, um, you can make the case that the organized sport really started in England with the Cotswold Games back in the 1600s in Dover. And over time, the English became very good at sport and the English were the pioneers of organized sport, if you will. And the Frenchman, Pierre de Coubertin, studied the English school system of sport, rugby, and some of the sporting activities that were practiced in English schools. And he adopted his Olympic model based on those studies. Why that's significant is that there are those that argue that to some degree, and this isn't specific to the Olympics, but to some degree, organized sport was being used as a way of keeping and elevating British males so that they can function in their colonial possessions with the level of masculinity and muscularity for which they were using to control those people in the colonies with which they were the territories with which they held. So there are those theories as well as to even the origin of sport. Now, again, those are theories um, and, and it's quite debatable. But what's not debatable is the fact that you cannot exclude politics, gender, and race from organized sport. It is part of the sporting narrative, whether we accept it or not. So I agree totally with that stuff. Okay. So I, I'm not going to get into capoeira or martial arts or wrestling in Senegal and all of that. That probably predates what was happening in the 1600s. They were... I would imagine, and I.D., correct me if I'm wrong, but they were organized in a different way. Yeah, so there's, you have each society, like if Africans were doing sports years and years and years ago. They may have been called something else, but culture, right. festivals, dances, right? these forms of expression, they were happening way, way, way before. But in terms of organized sport and calling it that, mm -hmm. you probably give it to the English or in terms of organization and making it work. Now, again, bear in mind that before that, you did have an ancient Olympics, okay? This started way back when, 77, 76. Right. So, but that was more of a festival where people would come for two, three weeks at a time, sell things in markets and exchange mm -hmm. gold and spices and clothing and things like that. And they had one event called the, the study, which is a 200-meter race around the stadium, and that was it. And then over time, they introduced wrestling and things like this. But in terms of the modern sport, probably as far as my research goes, it's really started with the English, which led to the current modern Olympic Games as we know them. Okay. Now, we do have one question in the chat. 
Esther Armar says, please share your top five Olympic moments that were surprising, shocking, or wonderful. Um, well, for these games, I, you know, I, there was just, I don't know, there were just so many, Esther. I mean, I couldn't, you know, rattle off um, some of the obvious ones, like, I thought Marcel Jacobs winning the 100. I was stunned by absolutely mm -hmm. stunned by that. I'm like, who? You know, um, <laughs> yeah. I think that Barbara Band of Zambia scoring a hat trick in the women's football and then doing it again. The first time that's been done, back-to-back -back hat tricks in women's football. Um, that's not been done before. If we go back to other Olympic games, I think that, Derek Redmond pulling a hamstring mm. in the 400 meters and then yeah. his father jumping in from the stands to help him across the finish line was a moment that would live for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, there's just, there's just so many different, different moments that it's just really hard to, to quantify. It's always nice to see when someone puts in a lifetime of work and dedication. Ruan Gardner, the wrestler from the United States, beating Alexander Crowellen back at the 2004 Olympic Games. And this is Crowellen had not lost a match in nearly 20 years, and he gets beat by this guy from, this, from Wyoming, you know, who wasn't even expected to make the team. I'm encouraged to see more and more women um, competing in the Olympic Games and more sports and opportunities being open to them and uh, just the thrilling moments they bring us. In some sports, the women are more dynamic and electrifying. For instance, if someone were to ask you, name someone on the U.S. gymnastics team, we know Simone Biles and Ali Weissman and Sunu. We cannot name a single male gymnast. On this the is US. true. Okay. This is uh, true. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, there have just been so many, just so many classic memories of the... Uh, of the Olympics, and hopefully there'll be many more in Paris. I mean, you know, sometimes just being within the context of the Olympics, even win or lose, it's just, just being there is something phenomenal. Whether you win or lose, there we go, there we go. So if we don't have any more questions, we're gonna wrap up. Heidi, is there anything, any gems or any gems or jewels or more little-known Olympic facts you'd like to close us out with? Well, I mean, just, you know, the nothing short of a miracle that this was pulled off the way it was. I was one of those that really adopted a wait-and-see approach. I was one of those that was cynical, mm -hmm. that did mm -hmm. not believe this could happen the way it did. I thought that given the trajectory that consideration ought to be given to postpone it yet again mm -hmm. until the situation in Japan got under better control. But they managed to do it. And, you know, and to do it in the way that they did was just something to behold. And you really needed a country like Japan to be able to do this. And they did. And so uh, now it's on to Paris. And it'd be interesting to see the stars that emerge between now and then. Now, what the Olympics does is the things we were talking about before the Olympics, we're not talking about anymore. For instance, we were talking about 
you know, how stadiums would be empty in Japan and this and that. All that went away. We got used to it. We were talking about Shikari Richardson before the Olympics. We're not now talking about Shikari Richardson. So the Olympics have a way, once they start, of taking over the narrative, hanging on to it, and then passing it on to the next games. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Idi Uliol of ID Sports, as always, always, thank you so much. Check out ID and his work on Twitter at ID Sports or IDSports.com. And also follow him on Instagram. He, we're, we're trying to build numbers here. We're trying to build numbers here. And for more information about Full Body Frequency, follow, like, and subscribe on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course. And you can also catch Full Body Frequency wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, tune into your own Full Body Frequency where large is luscious living. We'll see you all soon. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Heidi.